Welcome to Memories of Murder, an Asian true crime podcast. I'm your host, Agri Bunyai. For fans of true crime, you may have noticed that while a lot is said about crimes that happen in the West, not much is said about what happens here in Asia. So to even out the balance, in this podcast I'll be taking a look into some of the more horrific crimes that have happened in Asia, looking at what made them stand out and the context in which they took place. It's not as if there's a shortage of crimes to cover. While America may take the top spot for the number of known serial killers, accounting for a whopping 67%, Japan and India both make the top 10 list of most recorded serial killers. In fact, serial killers were operating in Asia long before the term was officially coined by the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. In fact, what is thought of as one of the first cases of serial murders was a Han prince, Liu Pengli who was active in China in the 2nd century BC. He was widely known to be a cruel man that hunted humans for sport, perhaps a precursor for the most dangerous game, and it's thought that over the course of 20 years, he may have had over 100 victims. But up until the mid-20th century, very few serial murders in Asia were reported, and even if they were, they were more likely to be related to the public as horrific crimes acted out by devils and demons as opposed to what we understand as serial killers today. In this first episode, I'll look at one of the first recorded cases of a serial killer who was operating in Hong Kong. That became known as the Jars Murders. It's early 1982, and Hong Kong is thriving. The tiny Asian island is moving away from the manufacturing industry that built its name and towards the service industry that would make it a regional economic powerhouse. Money was flowing in, and most of the people were focused on making as much of it as they could. At the time, Hong Kong was still under British rule, and it had one of the best police forces in Asia. There was very little crime and most of the violent crime that happened was either domestic or it involved the country's infamous triads. Serial killers were the last thing on people's minds. Twenty-one-year-old Chan Fung Lan was just like any other Hong Konger at the time. She worked a service job and was trying to get paid. She had been working at the Chinese Palace Nightclub, a job that meant that she finished work late. One night, she decides to go for after-work drinks with her friends, as you do. Then she ends up a little drunk, and so, being the nice colleagues that they are, they decide to get her a taxi home to make sure she gets home safely. However, halfway through the journey home, she tells the driver to stop, so he does so at the next service station. She then opens the door and proceeds to throw up everywhere. She's now feeling a little bit better, and so she tells the driver, She wants to go back and see her friends and carry on having fun. He complies, but a few minutes later, she changes her mind again. This indecisiveness infuriates the driver. Something snaps and minutes later, he's strangling her to death with an electrical wire. The driver's name is Lam Kor Wan. And this spur of the moment attack would be the first step in a six month campaign of murder that would leave at least four women dead. The man that later became known as Hong Kong's first serial killer was born and spent the first part of his life in Malaysia. Growing up, he witnessed his father beat his mother on several occasions 
and sometimes that anger would be redirected towards Lam. One time his dad beat him so hard he was knocked unconscious. Later, when the family moved to Hong Kong, the beating stopped and Lam settled into a life sharing a small apartment with his brother and father, working, sleeping and not much else. Now, Lam had always been a loner. That's partly why he worked as a cab driver on the night shift. It meant he could keep his own hours and he didn't have to socialise much. In all his life, he'd never had a girlfriend and his only interests, well, at least on the surface, seemed to be a very small uh, 1980s electronic chess game that he kept with him at all times. Basically, he kept himself to himself and he just drove his taxi around Hong Kong's nightlit streets and the world around him boomed and he didn't really seem to get involved. But because he worked that night shift, it meant he knew the streets so well, he knew exactly where to pick up vulnerable women. Which brings us back to our first victim, Chan Feng Lan. Strangling Chan to death had been impulsive, not premeditated. This first murder wasn't something that he planned for, or at least something that he prepared for. But what he did next took him from someone that had committed a crime in a moment of madness to a methodical killer. He drove Chan's body back to his apartment and, while his family slept, he stuffed her corpse under the family sofa and, hoping nobody would notice, or perhaps not caring, he went back to bed. The next morning, he listened carefully and when he heard his brother and father leave for work, Lam got started on the next phase of his crime. He covered the floor with plastic sheets and proceeded to dismember Chan with an electric saw right there in the apartment. He removed the head and the limbs and Lam took pictures of the gruesome scene. He then disposed of the remains in a nearby river, and a week later, when police discovered the body, the press reported that they were unable to identify the victim. Now this gave Lam some confidence, and he began planning his next murder. For this, he stocked up on equipment, and he bought surgical knives, plastic sheets, and even formaldehyde, and then, once again, he went out in his taxi to Hong Kong city streets in search for a new victim. His second victim was another of the city's nightclub workers, this time 31-year-old Chan Wan Kit. Again, after strangling his victim, he took her body back to his apartment for dismemberment. However, this time, he changed things up and he performed necrophilia with the body. This was the first time that Lam had had any kind of sexual contact. Okay, let's rewind a bit here. I've already mentioned that Lam was a loner and that he'd never had a girlfriend, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't interested in women. He was, however, extremely embarrassed by his sexual desires. Prior to the murders, Lam had amassed a huge collection of pornography, but in order to avoid the embarrassment of going into a newsagent and buying these magazines in person, he would order the magazines from Britain. Now, there's no reason to believe that any of the material that he purchased was particularly weird or kinky. It was probably just your basic late 70s porn. However, he soon got bored with that. It wasn't enough for him. So he purchased a Polaroid camera and turned his hand at amateur photography, albeit non-consensual. So what he would do is he would sneak into public restrooms and take pictures of women who were using the toilet by putting the camera under the cubicle door. But more than once doing this, he got caught and was chased out by the women in question. So 
He either thought that this is too risky to continue, I'm going to get caught, I'm going to get beaten up by a woman, or he felt he'd had enough of this and moved on to bigger crimes. Regardless, towards the end of 1982, Lamb had now killed four women, during which time his desire to film his pornography or crimes had grown. But this would ultimately be his downfall. You see, Lamb enjoyed documenting his crimes. Evidence that was collected later would include over 4,000 pictures and three videotapes. Remember, this is the 1980s. This isn't a smartphone that can take as many pictures as you want. He's buying film for an analogue camera. This is a lot of photographs. And getting these photos developed, well, that again wasn't so easy in the 1980s. If Lamb was going to catalogue his trophies, he was going to need to get the pictures processed somewhere. He couldn't very well set up a darkroom in his tiny Hong Kong apartment. So he headed to the local Kodak printers and there he told the clerk that he worked at a medical university. Now presumably this answer satisfied the clerk and he made no comment on the contents of the pictures that he was developing, presumably thinking that they were part of medical examinations for students. However, that all changed in August 1982 when the pictures began to take on a more sinister tone. The clerk called the police, telling them that these pictures from a supposedly professional medical school looked too amateurish and pornographic to have been performed by surgeons. After taking a look, the police soon deduced that the woman from the pictures was 17-year-old Leung Wai Sam, who had been recently reported missing. Because of this, they decide to set up a sting operation and they wait for Lam to come and pick up the pictures himself. Almost immediately, Lam arrives to collect his trophies and, almost immediately again, he's arrested. But the police don't have any physical evidence. They don't have enough to charge him with murder. They just have some gruesome pictures. So, of course, they decide to search his apartment. But nothing could have prepared them for what they found there. Upon entering the apartment, the police begin their search, and it's not long before they find what they're looking for. Remember, at this point, the police aren't looking to catch a serial killer. They've never even knowingly encountered one, but that would soon change. The search turns up evidence that Lamb had had more than one victim. The police soon discover a collection of Tupperware boxes, and inside, human remains. Lamb had been dissecting his victims and keeping their genitals preserved in formaldehyde. This is what later earned him the moniker of the Jars Murderer because he kept his victims' remains in boxes or jars as they were known in Hong Kong at the time. The public also found that Lamb had been keeping meticulous records of his deeds in the form of pictures and videos. Later viewings of the tapes would show a man completely detached from his actions, someone that treated his victims as nothing more than props in his macabre video. He smiles cruelly at the camera, the look of someone with no emotional response to the sickening crimes that he commits. And that's just it. Lamb was a typical psychopath, appearing outwardly normal, but with no sense of ethics or the rights of other people. When the police suggested that they search his apartment, he made no complaints. He didn't even seem concerned, despite the fact he must have known what they would find there, that there would be evidence of his crimes. But what made him more complex is that he showed signs of transgressive behaviour, that he did in fact care what people thought of him. Remember how he went to the trouble of ordering pornography from abroad. That was to avoid feeling humiliated in public. 
He would also later tell investigators that he felt embarrassed by the necrophilia that he committed. Did this mean that he could show empathy and remorse? Most likely, it simply meant that he didn't think what he did was wrong. To back this up, Lamb's brother and father were also arrested at the time in connection with the murders, and that's something that didn't sit too well with Lamb. At one point, Lamb and his brother were reunited, and in what can only be seen as a major slip-up by the police, they engaged in a physical altercation. After the fight, Lamb admitted to carrying out the killings alone, and that his family had had nothing to do with it. Is this because he wanted to help his family? Or was he worried about what they thought of him? Or perhaps it's neither, and he simply wanted to take all of the credit for his crime. Later, the issue of his mental state would become even more complex. During his trial, he, or perhaps his defence, would try to work the insanity angle, claiming that God had told him to kill the girls, and that that only happened when it rained. Whether or not Lamb truly believed this, it's impossible to say, but it's widely believed that this was simply used as a defence to avoid the death penalty, which at the time was waived for criminals suffering from insanity. The why behind his crimes is impossible to know for certain. What we do know for sure is that this was the most shocking murder that Hong Kong had ever seen at the time. The public were in disbelief. Lamb's crimes were not something that people were used to. In fact, so depraved were his crimes that a female officer who was working on the investigation at the time was removed from investigating the case, and even the jury that was selected to preside over the case in court were made up entirely of men. Although perhaps this says more about the attitudes towards women at the time than it does about the gruesomeness of his crimes. But what really shocked people at the time, and still vexes people today, is the fact that he was able to carry out these deeds right under the nose of his family. This is in a tiny Hong Kong apartment. The room was no more than 500 square feet, and Lam had used it like an abattoir, butchering his victims in this tiny space. And even if he had managed to avoid being caught during the act, how had he managed to keep the boxes, these boxes with human body parts, in the house without anybody noticing? We'd all like to think that we'd notice something like that happening in our own house. And this is why it shook people. It made them wonder what could be happening in their own apartment complexes. The island had suddenly become a little less safe. Lam's final murder, that of Leung Wai Sam, marked a change in his attitudes towards his victims. Up until then, Lam had felt nothing for the women that he killed. But he remarked to investigators that he'd liked Leung and that unlike previous murders, he'd handcuffed her and kept her prisoner in his taxi while they talked about family issues and whatever else it is that serial killers like to talk about. But this change didn't affect the outcome. Leung was still strangled just like the others. But it is interesting to think that whether this would have ended his crime spree, perhaps this connection to his victim could have brought out some semblance of remorse in him. The flip side to this is that maybe it simply would have pushed him further over the edge and instead of simply just murdering his victims, he could have taken women hostage for his own enjoyment. Regardless, this change would make no difference to Leung. And ultimately, Lam would be caught by his own mistakes. Initially, his insanity plea was thrown out of court and he was sentenced to death by hanging on April 8th, 1983. Following the abolition of the death penalty, his sentence was commuted to life in prison and today Lam remains in Shekpik prison. The Jars murders were later cemented into popular culture with the 1992 Hong Kong movie Dr. Lam, with Lam being portrayed by a very famous Hong Kong actor, Simon Yam. 
As for Lamb's family, well, they tried to move on, but for obvious reasons, they were unable to sell the apartment that the Jars murders had taken place in. The best that they could do was to hang pictures of the victims in their home and pray that they rest in peace. So that was The Jars Murders, and this has been the Memories of Murder podcast. Thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you download your podcast from. And you can also check in for more content on the Memories of Murder social media feeds. Or if you do want more content like this, check out my show, The Crimes That Shocked Asia, which airs on the History Channel. Good night. <laughs>